everyone, and welcome to another edition of Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casola, and with me today is not Dan Lyons, it's Andy Pregler. Hi! Uh, I'm here to tell John that he needs to get a better EPL team. <laughs> I mean, you know what? Everyone has a bad game, as you should really be familiar with. And, <laughs> and, and, and sometimes West Ham is, is, is the team from two years ago, and sometimes they're the best team in the Premier League. It's really fr- it's really funny um, because this is a game that Arsenal typically loses, and when they win this game, it gives me false hope. The fact that the winner of this game got the fourth place position and the Champions League spot that will go to the glob of teams that are some sort of dysfunction, either by money or by choice, made, made it all the more interesting. And I'm 99% sure that Arsenal will not finish in fourth. I would give West Ham a higher percentage chance of finishing fourth than Arsenal, but that game was vintage critics. Old, like, and I think we can talk about this when we talk about our football analysis. There's an old school way of thinking about football, and West Ham played into the old school way of thinking about football, and it didn't work. Shocker. <laughs> yeah, West Ham like once a month does like some really dumb nonsense. I think the team just like a little too strapped like for time and experience right now too, because you figure on top of the premier league, which they performed pretty well in so far this year, they also are still alive in FA cup and are in uh, Europa league on top of that. So now you've got like three different, I mean, I know this is how European football works, but very much, you know, uncharted territory for this club of having this much going on. And and I feel like (laughs) it could catch up to them. Yeah. And I, I think that that's like, Arsenal likes to think themselves above these struggles, but like the reality is that Arsenal is very much in that struggle right now. They really only have about 14 players that you can put on the pitch against top flight competition and expect to do well with. And tonight was a day where they, they got what they needed out of those guys and, and good moving forward. I don't trust it holistically, uh, but I will take the win. I will take the fourth place position. They've got, uh, Norwich um, on Boxing Day, and they've got one other game coming up. I think it's against Southampton. Um, they just played Southampton, so maybe it's not Southampton. They've got one more game before that. Um, they should be fine. Uh, the EPL chase, I explained it to my friend who doesn't know it. The fourth place uh, spot in the EPL table is basically the seventh seed in the NFC West. It is a mess of teams that you think are actually good, but they're not uh, actually good on paper. <laughs> it's a reasonable comparison. Yeah, I hope everyone enjoyed the uh, brief foray into Premier League talk. It's, <laughs> kind of, it's, it's, a, it's a nice gift for those who hated uh, Knicks and Nets talk or Mets talk. That usually, Bing bong. <laughs> I am, I, I, I'm not on speaking terms with the Knicks right now. <laughs> <laughs> nor, nor should you be. I, the Knicks-Nets game at Barclays Center that I went to was absolutely fantastic as a Nets fan, not so much as a Knicks fan, which was the person that I went with. <laughs> anyway, for one miserable team to another. Um, In anyway, blue and orange. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're talking Syracuse football here today, um, specifically sign, well, early signing period. Uh, when we went into the day, we didn't think things were going to go overly well uh, with only 10 guys committed. We ended up with 13 uh, signed, which is better uh, at, at the same time, though, I wouldn't necessarily say we are on any shorter footing um, as a program right now than we were at the beginning of the day. Uh, obviously, you know, SU still really lacks that, like, elite, elite 
um, player for this class. Uh, LaQuint Allen's kind of the, the top name right now. Uh, 24-7 composite has him ranked 777th. Um, typically, under Babers, we've had at least like one, maybe two guys who are ranked among the top 500 or so, um, and then a good collection of guys um, in the top 1,000. This year, uh, due to some pandemic reasons, others just because, um, you know, when you don't hire a director of recruiting operations for an entire <laughs> season, this can happen. Um, you only end up with three top thousand guys. Um, you don't to say, John. Yeah, it's it's weird what happens when, when you don't have a full recruiting staff, um, how you might not recruit well, uh, or at least as well as you had been. Um, not that recruiting was saving Dino Babers by any means, but at least in upgraded recruiting compared compared to his predecessor, Scott Schaefer, would at least give you an advantage there if you're having that silly argument about who's the better coach. Um, this year, things have not gone well. We in, Until today, at least, we didn't get a commit um, or, or a signee between uh, late August and you know now, which, again, not great. Um, and, and, and even worse, when your coach now looks like he's on the hot seat, uh, I think this is going to be a really interesting next month, month and a half, because SU not only has to add another, you know, 12 or more players um, to this roster, but also has to find an offensive coordinator and with it a new identity, um, you know, a wide receivers coach, like a new defensive line coach. So there, there's a lot that still has to happen. And, and, and I don't think we've been in this state under Babers at all um, in, in terms of just like, it's not tumult necessarily, but it's close to it where there's just a whole lot of questions. And I, I don't think anyone likes the answers there, at least their heads giving them. Yeah. And I, I've talked about this a lot on Twitter. Um, and, and the reason that I'm just kind of out on Babers at the moment is, is not because of any of the results on the field. And there's plenty of Syracuse fans who do not like the results on the field. And that's enough to, to, to move on from Babers. Uh, but a lot of the things that you just that you just mentioned, the the lack of coaching at very specific positions or lack of administrators at very specific positions show that there's a lack of defined process uh, from the top down. And like that's whether you like it or not. I literally just had this conversation with a friend. We were talking about college football and whether you like it or not, you do not need to be a good X's and O's college football coach to be a good college coach in today's era you really need to be not a ceo but a coo you need to be able to hire people for the right positions who actually know their stuff you need to be able to manage people you need to be able to manage the systems that are in place to keep the momentum moving forward and i i know that it's really dumb to compare anything that syracuse does to what nick saban does but why nick saban is so great is because he's a Terminator. He's a robot that is entirely obsessed with creating the next evolution of the next effective system. How does he get such good talent? Is because these systems are in place that allow five stars to come in and sit for a year and feel like they're being valued. It allows for coaches who need a rehabilitation to come in and do the grunt work that any other college would pay 20 grand for. Uh, and feel like they're rehabilitating their careers. He He's just created a Death Star in the sense that all the pieces are moving in a way that create this thing that's greater than the sum of its parts. And whether you like it or not, the fact that Saban is doing that at Alabama means that every single program that wants to have aspirations of success needs to do that at some level. And we saw it with Clemson, where they were able to do that through recruiting and through coaching. 
And what has really frustrated me about Babers is that there has never been this definition of success through process-oriented approach that we've seen. We've heard him talk about, you know, belief without evidence. We've heard him talk about, you know, well, I believe in this offensive system that turned Jimmy Garoppolo into an NFL quarterback. But we've yet to see any tangible results of a system that actually produces these things. We've seen... Eric Dungy carry a team. We've seen turnover luck carry a team. And and I think this recruiting class is really a culmination of a lot of these things coming to play where the landscape of college football changed dramatically over the last 18 months between COVID and NIL and the ridiculous amount of money that uh, high-end programs are willing to spend on their teams. And the end result is that Syracuse isn't just behind the eight ball anymore. I don't know even know if they're on the same billiard board table anymore. Like, like it's just, it's just really apparent that until we get somebody with that kind of process oriented vision, we're not playing the same game and recruiting is going to be that annual reminder of that fact. And this year's class really kind of seems like the canary in the coal mine of if we don't change something up long-term, we're going to be the Yukon of the power five. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. And honestly, like there's a, I mean, we talked about it when we first joined the ACC. There is a little bit of a, some catching up to do. I think that unfortunately, like Syracuse is yet to do it. Yep. And, and, and it looked like it happened in 2018. Said, okay, this is the, the, the beginning of, of the next era of orange football. What's happened since? You know, SU's won a combined 11 games over the course of three seasons. They've looked putrid for extended amounts of that time. They failed to really capitalize at all on a 2018 season. That should have meant the beginning of at least something better to get them, you know, closer to, um, you know, a, a perennial bowl team. And yes, we did go five and seven in two of these three seasons. So I don't want to say that we are not close, but at the same time, like what we saw during the last three games of the season shows just how far away we are from a week to week, year to year competent program and, and, and losing as many players we have in, in the portal and, and at least to date failing to necessarily like replace them with like replace with, with like, you know, top tier replacements or at least guys who would be seen by most to be power five players. Like I, I think overall we are at this sort of crossroads and you know what, like to, to think about it the same way you are, like, I just don't know if Dino is the guy to get us across this chasm. And, 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 and to be honest, like, I don't know who is, and, and that's not to say it's impossible, but it's to say that without a change in direction in terms of how we spend money, how we allocate resources, how we use our facilities, um, how we recruit, how we schedule, how, how you know, alums and, and wealthy boosters are, are, are activated, like, there needs to be a top-down shift in, in, in how things are done, and I'm... And, it's not to say that Syracuse is unique in this, but I don't think there's a lot of schools that could quickly do what, what's probably needed for, for SU in particular, especially as the dynamics around college athletics are, are shifting so rapidly and you're seeing the amount of money being poured in, even in the last you know month and a half, shows how like outmanned and outgunned SU is at, at this juncture. And, and it's going to be like you need to have both patience and hit the right hire in a way that you know, Wake Forest did with, with Dave Clawson. Yep. Um, and for a while, like Duke did with Dave Cutcliffe. Like, I just don't know if SU has the ability to 
do these things. And that's not a knock on SU as much as it's to say, like, there's a lot of schools that don't. And SU just happens to be one of them and the one that we're talking about. Yeah, and I and I think this is, brings up a really interesting hypothesis that I, I think we should start really diving into as a college football landscape, which is the difference between the bottom of the Power Five and the top end of the G5 in terms of the MAC um, and the and the Power Independence. In that, if you're if you're in the G5, whether it be the MAC, whether it be the SWAC, whether it be the whatever AC conference that you're in. I think that there is an element of success that can be achieved, not just in terms of consistent bowl appearances, but conference championship appearances where your head coach is really and truly an X's and O's guy, where they are bringing something to the table that the rest of the conference isn't doing that allows you to maximize that marginal talent that you recruit on your roster versus the power five where that marginal talent is so far below what everybody else is doing. It, it's not really going to make that much of a difference. What you do X's and O's, you really need to change what you're doing systemically in order to close that gap and then allow the talent gap to, to kind of get to a point where X's and O changes can actually be implemented. And I, I think, you know, at this point, Syracuse is in a position where we, we could hire a really good, X's and O's guy from the G5, but they're going to come in and have to run a program in a way that they've never done before, um, whether it be a head coach or a coordinator. And those are the kinds of things that seem to have tripped up Dino Babers. It's not necessarily like the on-field results, even though we can talk about that at nauseum. Uh, it's been a lot of the off-the-field stuff that recruiting highlights and brings to the forefront. And I'm not entirely sure, like you said, I'm not entirely sure there's anybody right now that I go out and I say, that's the guy. And maybe this is the opportunity for Syracuse to go out and hire somebody who's truly a program manager. Like we all gave the Herm Edwards hire a ton of flack. And I'm not saying that the Herm Edwards hire is a good hire, but that mentality of hiring a, a program CEO type might be the better way to go. If you can get somebody who's connected with good coaches and good recruiting coordinators and and good fundraisers, because ultimately fans too, based on another team they might root for. <laughs> right, and and like this is and this is the issue is that Syracuse is in an ACC that is bad. Like we are not talking about Syracuse trying to compete in the SEC or the Big Ten. We're talking about them competing in a conference that right now does not have a true power which should be an opportunity for Syracuse to succeed. But we are so far behind. Pitt just won the ACC. Pitt is a team that you and I and a lot of other writers for years have considered a peer program. And the reality is that Pitt is operating on another level that Syracuse has not been in since we joined the ACC. Pitt took the ACC invite, used it to grab the four and five star talent in their area and, and truly built something that is ACC quality. We did not, and I think that that's a really hard pill to swallow for a lot of people, but you've been one of the people that's been tooting the horn for years that, like, look at the results on the field. We, we're, we're competing with the lower tier of the ACC, these pits, these wake forests, these teams that we want to say that we're actually comparative to. We're just not when it comes to the on-the-field results. Yeah, and that's not even to, like, get into the actual, like, head-to-head results. I mean, for the most part, we've been, like, at parity with wake at parity with BC, uh, we've been losing to Pitt for most of the last 20 years for reasons unknown. But, but but realistically, like, 
when it comes to the year-to-year consistency. Like BC, we can deride them all we want. BC's been a bowl contender for the most of the last 25 years. Like year in and year out, with a handful of exceptions, um, has been a a consistent bowl contender. So while you don't necessarily see a top 25 class coming the way we, you know, they ended up pulling one together right now, BC still has 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 an air of consistency and stability that Syracuse just has not been able to, you know, create since, uh, you know, Coach Pasqualoni was fired. And that's not to say he shouldn't have been fired. It's not to say that he was on his way to getting you back to where fans want them to be. But, but it is to say that realistically, there needs to be some sort of, like, rock the program attaches itself to. And, and it just hasn't happened. And that doesn't mean it can't happen. That doesn't mean that every program has that either. But there, there, there's clearly at this point, like you point, you know, mentioned, there, there needs to be the central philosophy, the central management. Like, Favors was able to recruit to a system and a philosophy at the beginning, and that did fall apart uh, yep. eventually. And, and, you know, either he has to recommit to a philosophy, whether it's the original one or not, or the next coach needs to come in and, and, and implement something similar. Because right now, like, it, this is a program about an identity, and that's why you have it. Again, not to knock these individual players. I think there, there's some of these guys will end up, you know, being key contributors. But, like, it's clear that people don't – kids don't know what franchise they're signing up for anymore. Right. Um, and, and that becomes a real problem uh, if, you, if you look at how, you know, temporary all, all of collegiate success looks like and how fleeting, um, you know, commitments look like. Uh, when you know you can go somewhere else and potentially get more out of NIL, you can get more out of um, playing time, you can get more out of, you know, coaching staff and support staff. Like, it's not having an identity right now is, I think, such a even more detrimental than it used to be. And, and that's really where SU's tripped up here. Yeah, and I and I would say that this is all hyperbole, and we're all you know we're we're doom scrolling in a sense here, <laughs> but the reality is that Syracuse has had more players leave through the transfer portal than any other Power Five team. This isn't a situation where we're projecting players to do things that haven't already been done. We've already seen that Syracuse has the capacity to lose a ton of scholarship players every year to the portal. And all we're doing here is saying that, like, listen, if you connect the dots, the 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 slide is already there. The guy just has to climb up the ladder, and there's not a lot preventing them from doing so. And, and so, yeah, like, bringing it back to, like, this specific recruiting class, I don't necessarily think that it's a bad group of players. I think it's a Syracuse group of players where half of them will end up being career, you know, second name on depth chart, and a bunch of them might end up being something interesting. Um, it's just a matter of like Syracuse really needed another quarterback. We really needed some impact wide receivers. We really needed some key contributors and four stars in positions that we just were never able to grab. Because if you are a high impact player, what about Syracuse says, if they promise me something, they're going to follow up on it. If they pitch me X, they're going to deliver on Y. And yeah, we saw them completely revamp the offense literally this off season to be more run focused and dangle a quarterback competition in front of it to pretend like that wasn't the case. Like, like if I'm an 18 year old player and I'm applying any ounce of thought to this process, Syracuse is not a place that provides any iota 
of career growth for me that I can't get somewhere else with a better pitch of stability. Yeah, I, I think that's completely like legit, like realistically. And, and, and the silly thing is, and I mentioned this when I was talking to Brent Axe uh, yesterday on the radio, like one of the biggest issues when, when it comes to quarterback, uh, you know, recruiting for us in particular is that it doesn't necessarily look like the new guy ever gets a fair shake. And, and Trader mm-hmm. did quickly and potentially too quickly. Um, but, but now he looks entrenched once again. DeVito looked entrenched until he wasn't. Dungy was entrenched the entire time. Like th- th- there's this appearance that the, the starter once put into place cannot be challenged. And, and that does become a problem for, for a lot of these you know, guys who want to come in and, and realistically, like they see time and time again, quarterback sits for a year, realizes that his path to starting is, is cut off. He goes somewhere else. He finds success. So I, I, I think that, you know, SU has to change kind of how they think about that too. And I mean, I don't think there's anyone or should be anyone that watched what we saw with, you know, Schrader under center last year and say like, yeah, more of this. And, and, and I want absolutely nothing to challenge my view on that. <laughs> it's, it's really challenging to be a Syracuse football fan right now. And I, I'm not going to begrudge anybody who feels defeated or does not get gather joy out of talking about these things. What I will say is that I don't necessarily think that Syracuse is in a position where they can never compete. What I do think is that we need to have a real honest conversation about what some people think can lead to competition versus what actually leads to competition in this day and age. And I think that that is an off-season topic that we'll dive pretty heavily into just because of the fact that it's uh we've seen the we've seen the tide change. Uh and there's not a whole lot that anybody can do to say like bring back the good old days and actually have success doing that. You've got to play the new game. And if you're not going to have the money, if you're not going to do a coach prime situation and, you know, turn your program into an advertisement for one dude, um, you, you've really got to play intelligently. And Syracuse has never, at least in my lifetime, shown the ability to play the money ball game in the way that actually generates any kind of success. I would agree with all that, unfortunately. Um... <laughs> Yeah, I know. I, I don't think it's worth like diving too far into the class itself, just because we there's been plenty on the blog. There's going to be plenty more tomorrow. We have a roundtable um, yep. tomorrow and Thursday for those reading and listening. But Andy, why don't we talk a little bit about beer here? Yeah. Uh, before we maybe talk about some Marvel related stuff, since this is a big week um, for Marvel related content. And realistically, if you and I are going to be on the same podcast, why wouldn't we talk about? It? <laughs> I'm uh, just just letting everybody know that this is if this is your first time around with an Andy guest show, this is this is what happens. I don't even work for a Marvel adjacent company anymore. And it's still going to happen. Um, uh, shout out to Beer Wax, which if you are in town to watch a game at Barclays Center, it's a short walk. Um, it is a black owned beer shop that does uh, vinyl records and Star Wars memorabilia along with beer. Great place. They've got a lot of good shit. Um, my, uh, I did, I honestly try to take a week off. I have a wedding in, uh, St. Augustine coming up with a bunch of college friends that I know is going to absolutely wreck my body. 
So I am trying to be responsible and limit my drinking. And so this week I was limited to my weekly flower power at my uh, trivia bar. But then when I went to beer wax with a friend, with a bunch of Syracuse friends, actually, um, I grabbed the fifth hammer um, fourth anniversary, double IPA uh, 8.5 ABV really tasty. I actually really enjoyed that uh, IPA. It was a good wintry IPA where it didn't sit super heavy, but still had that IPA without a lot of citrus and floral notes. It was more of a, like your traditional dark, heavy style IPA. Um, I did get, they had prison city on tap. It was the prison city Citra Oasis IPA, uh, 7.8 APV has like a 4.2 on, uh, untapped. I really didn't like it. It was, it was way too fruity and citrusy for me. Um, I typically like like the juicy style IPAs. This one just felt a little bit more too sweet and not quite hoppy enough for, for my personal preference. And then I had the other half IPA, um, double dry hopped forever, uh, Simcoe. That was an 8.5. I really enjoyed really enjoyed that one. Um, and then I am currently drinking a blue moon because that is what former news magician beat writer, Sean Farrell left in my fridge when he spent the night for a Nets game. Uh, <laughs> great. Blue moon sucks now. <laughs> yeah, I, it is, uh, as he said, it was the cheapest six pack that they had in, in totality at the uh, corner store across the street from my apartment. So when you're yeah. dealing with those very specific parameters, yeah, it's going to be blue moon. Yeah. Uh, Miss Ann, I didn't have a ton last weekend. I had a few things. Um, Selenaker up in uh, San Francisco, they actually ship statewide. So uh, ended up getting a uh, case last week. So I had a Cloudy with a Chance Adobus, a uh, Hazy IPA from them, very citra heavy. Had a Motalis, another. Uh, this was a uh, Hazy West Coast um, IPA. Was. Pretty heavily, pretty heavy on the mosaic front. So kind of grapefruity, piney. Definitely enjoyed that. Um, had from Modern Times, uh, Polyrhythmo. It's a Pilsner from them that I think I mentioned before. And then also had, it was a hazy West Coast Pale Ale from Cellar Maker. It's a fast fishing. Kind of this exclusive hop varietal from um, up in Washington. It's called Anchovy. So uh, it was good. Overall, no complaints. Um, and I'll have... Probably the rest of those four packs that I bought uh, this weekend. The fast fishing actually sounds um, really fun. That's that that actually sounds like something that I would really enjoy, and I wish we got kind of more of here. Um, the New York scene when it comes to pale ales, you get your macro micros, you know, the Sierra Nevadas, um, the the Bells kind of thing. Um, but I, I I wish that there was a little bit more variety in the pale ale. Like that tends to be what I settle into in the winter. Uh, I move away from the IPAs and go to more of the pale ales, um, which is weird because I feel like that's, that's not a winter winter habit, but they really do hit the spot. It's just tough to find things that aren't, you know, what everybody else is drinking. <laughs> yeah. I mean, ultimately, like, I feel like Dan and I talked about this for the last like, couple of years, like pale ales were kind of becoming like a forgotten style. And I actually feel like out here at least, uh, people have invested a lot more in them lately, which is great. Um, Hazy West Coast has actually become like a like style that you see all the time now too, uh, which is interesting because really, I, personally, I think if you're going to make a West Coast IPA or a pale, I'll just make it. <laughs> <laughs> Why does it need to be hazy? But um, yeah, haze is what the people want. So 
so they're finding ways to, to, to satiate people like me um, while also still, you know, feeding the craze. Yeah, the, the hazy stuff is is really hitting New York hard. Um, so many hazy New England IPAs that are popping up. And like, listen, I'm I'm a self uh, self-identified IPA lover who really enjoys like West Coast IPAs, really enjoys juicy IPAs, hazies right up that alley of I will pretty much buy anything uh, that says that on it just because I'm going to assume I'm going to like it. But we are really getting to the point where um, a lot of these hazies are just pale ales. And that, that, not to say that you shouldn't, you know, market whatever you want to market to sell beers. I, we need more local craft beer breweries from across the world making making sales. Um, but we're getting to the point where it really does kind of feel like there's not a ton of differentiation. And there are some places that are churning out really nice pale ales. Um, I didn't have it this week, but Three's Brewing here in New York has a couple of um, pale ales that I highly recommend. The The number one being Here You Go. Um, it's a great pale ale that works all year round. It just feels like pale ales are kind of pushed to the side for these hazy things when you could really brand the hazy as a pale ale and there wouldn't be any difference. Fair enough. All right, Andy. So <laughs> the fun stuff. Well, well, the big thing. Uh, well, there's two big things I guess for Marvel this week. There's obviously uh, Hawkeye episode five, penultimate episode of that series uh, on Disney Plus for those who are watching. Uh, and there's also um, Spider-Man: um, No Way Home coming out. I know it's out in the UK already, and it'll be out on Thursday. Um, here in the U.S., I think you're going Thursday. I know I'm going Friday to yes. uh, see it in theaters. So uh, no streaming option. Seems like it's going to break box office records. Hopefully yeah. not COVID transmission records. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. At least in New York and and, and Los Angeles, uh, everyone's wearing masks in theater. Yeah, so that, and we, and like this is the this is the thing. I was just talking to somebody about it. Like the nice thing about New York is that at least the places that I go to are like actually checking your vaccination cards. So um for me, you know, being in a situation where if I test positive, I might indirectly shut down an entire school building and then inconvenience hundreds of families. Like it's really important to me that like I'm being responsible when I go indoor places. Um so that that's a big help and why I feel comfortable going on on Thursday. <laughs> Reasonable. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat there. Obviously, I have kids too, so I'm not trying yeah. to do anything there. Um, but yeah, I guess what are your? I know we've talked about this one on one in our Marvel Slack on on noon, but like, is there is there anything you feel like this movie has to do in order to like succeed? <laughs> I, I listen. I, uh... I feel like if we really wanted to go into this, you and I could just read our text conversations that we've had for the last like six months about this. Um, and it would take three hours. Like, let's be real here. We've talked about this a lot. The, the reality is that I, I'm at the point with this whole IP bonanza that we're at, where I just want to see really good stories with the characters that I love. And, and, Part of that is that you and I are, for those that don't know, like we're both comic book readers. And one of the things that you and I are both drawn to is that comic book storytelling in the modern era is so much based around an author who actually knows how to write fiction, like coming in and writing a story for a specific character and less so about 
trying to serve the character's history. And I feel like this Spider-Man movie is trying to do more of the latter and, and tie together 20 years of Sony and Marvel Spider-Man history into one, as opposed to telling a Peter Parker story. And part of that is because of what we talked about on Slack today, where Tom Holland really hasn't been given a Spider-Man story in the MCU. Holland's basically been tagged as Iron Man light and has been the vehicle through which the MCU has moved through. And it's been very disappointing from a, uh, from a true Spider-Man story sense. Now, does that mean that I'm going to dislike this movie? Absolutely not. It just means that from what I've read from the reviews, from what I know about leaks, from what I know from my last job where they like, I was privy to MCU pre, you know, pre knowledge. If we call it that um, this movie is definitively set to serve Spider-Man movie fans from the last 20 years. And that's fine. It can do that. It's just going to be another Spider-Man movie where I walk out of and I go like this, this did not, this, this isn't the Spider-Man that I fell in love with as a character when I was reading the comics as a kid. Um, and and this all the more kudos to Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, which I think um, we are going to find out throughout our lifetimes may be the best Spider-Man movie that ever was produced while we were alive. Like it was a movie that gave Peter Parker a true Spider-Man story, gave Miles Morales a true Spider-Man story, gave Ghost Spider a true Spider-Man story. And we we have these movies that are focused on one particular Spider-Man that can't do that. And it, and it is kind of frustrating at a point. Um, but from the larger MCU narrative, uh, this is just all an appetizer to when Doctor Strange gets to screw around with the multiverse. And I'm fine with that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's ultimately like the, 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 the issues there. You highlight some great things. Like, I feel like through phase one and two uh, of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you had these individual stories that, yeah, you knew they were going to lead to something of a team up, but it wasn't the only reason they existed necessarily. And I do feel like phase three changed that a bit. And, th- and there's some great movies in there, but they were great movies first. And then they also, yes, did move the ball further down the field toward, you know, the end game, you know, finale. Uh, well, and I, I know that there was another movie after that, obviously, you know, Spider-Man Far From Home was after, but point being. It, was it, all it, felt, like, it felt like an epilogue. Like a yeah, very extended epilogue. epilogue. Yeah, we were realistically like there were there were a lot of interesting individual stories that led to a, a culmination of things with Endgame. While I feel like now, like this Spider-Man movie feels like marketing for the next phase of the MCU, and I think that's problematic. I also think like to the point you were making, like. If Into the Spider-Verse was able to tell a lot of Spider-Man stories with real stakes and a lot going on and, you know, wacky animation and everything else, like able to do all that and tell individual Spider-Man stories for like at least three characters, if not more, why does this franchise in particular, I'm sure this movie, and without even seeing it, I'm guessing, struggle to do the same? Um, I, I think for the most part, it, it struggles with a lot of the issues, and we talked about this the other day, that like the Nick Spencer run um, for comics readers, like has suffered from, and, and, and I think, you know, was thankfully over, and that's not to hate on Nick Spencer too much, but just to say that, like, the run didn't work because it tried to do, it tried to be a thing that was part, you know, historical fan service, part, like, big event, and then 
never really understood like what it was as a Spider-Man story. And I, I think that while the initial bits of, um, you know, homecoming years ago were that, and, and, and that's, I think why a lot of, you know, Spider-Man specific fans like that one best of the Marvel uh, Spider-Man movies. I, I think since then we've seen, yeah, he, he was a secondary character in a, in an Iron Man 3.5. Then he was, and then, then I argue he was the secondary character in the Mysterio movie, which was great. <laughs> and, and now, and now he's going to be a secondary character potentially in Dr. Strange 1.5 or, right. or, or, or maybe Spider-Man 3.5. Um, from the original Raimi trilogy, or maybe yep. it's Spider-Man 2.5 from the Garfield. <laughs> <laughs> we don't really know, and and, and it's, it's it's become it's become a problem, and, and I think that's why I increasingly am fine with Peter leaving the MCU if that's what it comes to, because I don't necessarily think he's been rendered an essential character yep. for this larger continuity and story, because it's just due to how movies are made because of how fandom exists because of how you need to keep expanding the universe and make the stakes bigger and bigger a character like peter who's as important as he is but also street level to an extent as he is it's just he just he's out of place in that larger narrative and and that's fine i'm fine with him existing in a different narrative where he gets to deal with his real world problems plus being a super powered individual and maybe there's occasional crossovers. I think that might be the better approach going forward than every Spider-Man movie, uh, you know, an event film as we're now getting used to. Yeah, and I think, John, I think you actually just, you hit the nail on the head um, in a way that I had never been able to articulate or formulate, which is that Spider-Man, in context of what the MCU is trying to do, is a Netflix hero. Uh, Like, Spider-Man is somebody who gets a grounded series about what the life of of queens looks like and i think that the best spider-man comics you know the ultimate run by bendis the original run um by by stan lee uh and steve ditko and a lot of the stuff that don slot did it's all it, it's all spider-man dealing with his, his family intersecting with his superhero life or with his, uh, you know, friends deal intersecting with the superhero life. And the MCU is just not built for that. Like, that's not what the MCU is about. The MCU is about forward momentum building towards the next big thing. And, and Spider-Man's never about the next big thing. And, and the Spider-Verse event that Don Slott wrote that became the Into the Spider-Verse movie, that became this this base of multiversal shenanigans that both the comics and the movies have really leaned into was really the first spider-man centric crossover event that took place and it was still almost entirely centered in the spider-man universe uh like spider-man is not a captain america character or or an iron man or a doctor strange character that does his best work interacting with other big mcu heroes spider-man does his best work when his best friend is struggling with drug addiction and familial abuse. He's a character that uh, does his best work when there's a comic about him being sick with the cold and having to fight his arch nemesis and hide his secret identity. Like none of these things are great translations to giant film franchises that exist beyond Spider-Man. And 
I think Holland was always the right choice to play the character because he embodies this much younger version that Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield never quite nailed. But they never leaned into that element beyond, hey, Ned's a really quirky, awkward kid, and MJ's a quirky, awkward kid. Hey, Aunt May. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, like Aunt May. Yeah, Aunt May's a young and quirky aunt. Like... (laughs) The, the the whole thing the whole thing it doesn't necessarily feel like a miss it just feels like a very surface level interpretation of the source material and i don't necessarily think that that was intentional i think that it's just the end result of what you get when the narrative space that you've laid out is this sprawling expansive universe where spider-man by the name alone is your best character and I think that the Marvel universe did best when it wasn't dealing with A-list characters. Like that's what made the MCU, the MCU. And then they inserted an A-list character and kind of expected the same formula to work. And it didn't. Yeah. I think that's totally fair. Cause there's, I mean, you look at every character really, and we'll see what happens with when they eventually introduce, you know, X-Men Fantastic Four who are, I mean, I'd say the Fantastic Four A-list characters even if not to the same extent they were, like when the first Fantastic Four movie came out. Um, and I'd say the X-Men are still A-list characters to many Marvel fans, even if moviegoers have maybe like shrugged their shoulders at the last few movies. But like, you're right in that, like those initial, like other than the Hulk, and even then, like I think people had already like just conditioned themselves to think, eh, Hulk movie, whatever. Like all these characters from Iron Man, Captain America, Black Panther, like Doctor Strange, Ant-Man, like none of these characters were known entities to to the wider public beforehand so you had a blank canvas and a blank slate to to to, to go with and and you were you were allowed to create their own destinies and to create yeah. their like create an embodiment of something like this spider-man has always had to live up to previous movies and, and a long-standing mythos and fandom and, and and this preconception even from like non-comic book readers this preconception about what spider-man is and embodies and like you know, like for, for again, for comic readers, like you would never throw Daredevil on the, like with the Avengers for more than a couple issues. Like, and, and, and he would be, you know, a character helping in a larger, larger conflict, but then that would be it. He would walk away and then go back to being Daredevil. However, in the case of Spider-Man and MCU, he's never, Peter's never been able to go back to being Peter. E- even with the Mysterio stuff, like, you know, no matter how fictional or not it was, he was still dealing with like large, large threats and taking him out of New York. I think in that movie in particular, like created this Avengers level threat as a, as an image. And again, like I liked Far From Home quite a bit as a movie, but I, I do think that as a Spider-Man movie, I think you reevaluate and, you know, like I watched Spider-Man 2, uh, the Raimi movie recently. And like there, there's part, there's some aspects of it that appear a little dated, but overall, like, it feels like a Spider-Man movie. And I honestly didn't expect to feel that way watching a movie that's almost 20 years old. Yeah. And I think that, um, what, what the Spider-Man movies really lacked in the MCU was a just coherent idea of what Peter Parker was as a person. From what I've read about the early reviews, they really try to, um, fix that in this one movie the problem is that there's so many other things going on that we've seen from the trailers. Like we've seen 
Doctor Strange, we've seen a multiverse of of Spider-Man villains. And it just feels like you're doing a too little too late. And uh, not to like unintentionally segue this conversation, but I'm going to unintentionally segue this conversation. Um, the Hawkeye TV series has made a very intentional decision to base itself on a comic that literally reinvented the character of Hawkeye to the point that, you know, the Matt Fraction, David Aja uh, comic that they wrote has become the de facto Bible for if you were going to do Hawkeye in movies, in video games, in comics, that is, that is where you start. That is the origin story. Forget the 40 plus years of history that Hawkeye had had before then, you know, that's the start. And it, it feels like the MCU really tried to say, this will be the new start of Spider-Man, but they just made an, a young Iron Man and nobody really took to it in the way that they expected it to. I mean, granted, uh, movie going publics did, but not in yeah. the storytelling sense, at least. Um, Andy, I guess the question for you now is, do you think, what, what, what do you think the, like, if, if you've read spoilers, leave them out of here, but what do you think the odds are that we see Tobey Maguire and, and Andrew Garfield in this movie? <sighs> I mean, listen, <laughs> if you're going to bring in the villains, you're going to bring in the heroes, and... I think it's the worst kept secret in Hollywood that that Sony wanted a Sinister Six Spider-Man movie and Kevin Feige has delivered them that promise. And I don't think that there is a non-correlation between I just used a lot of double negatives there. I, I basically think that the the, contra the contract disputes that we saw la a couple years ago between Sony and Marvel, I think that they had a direct impact on the movie that we're getting now. Um, I think that Sony had a clear list of things that they wanted to do with the franchise. Marvel had a clear list of things that they wanted to achieve throughout their cinematic universe. This movie is going to be the, the best attempt at creating some kind of Cronenberg version of those two visions. Um, I think the movie will be good because at the end of the day, Kevin Feige and John Watts have proven that they can create really good crowd pleasing movies. Um, but I do think, again, like going back to the original point of this conversation, if you are a true Spider-Man purist fan who's looking for a story about a kid who just wants to do the right thing and feels tremendous guilt about not doing the right thing, this isn't going to be that movie. Um, this will be a fun movie where you get to revisit your last 20 years of Spider-Man movies. And I think for most people, that'll be enough. Um, I just don't necessarily think that it's going to hit the buttons that you've wanted if you were looking for a traditional spider-man movie yeah i honestly I, I i have very little uh to say differently about that i i think that it's obviously going to be a success it's obviously going to change parts of status quo um but ultimately like this is just something that is going to be is not going to be a movie we like look back on with any sort of like rose-colored goggles necessarily, and it'll be fine. Well, like, I, well, I have well, a, oh, go for it. No, I was gonna say like I have a legitimate question for you, which is like the idea of we 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 talk about a lot of these seminal moments that take place in movies, and hypothetically speaking, is three 
iterations of a legacy IP character showing up on the same screen going to set the precedent moving forward for IPs that like this is this is an avenue out for you to get brownie points with your fans like like we've seen Rick and Morty introduce the multiverse to pop culture vernacular MCU went around and just basically hired all of those writers to write their TV shows um here's an example of hypothetically speaking where here's a legacy character that has been cast multiple times with multiple names uh we can just throw them all on screen when we want to reset things. Like, is this going to be something that we look back on and say, this was the first time that this happened and it's now happened a billion times afterward. Or are we going to see this as like a, a once off where eh, it's, it's just too big of a gamble. It's too much of a, of a, you need to have too much other things in place in order to, to pull this kind of thing off. Uh, I think it depends on what happens here and what happens in Doctor Strange. Because if, if the rumors are true around Strange, where we see alternate versions of certain actors or certain characters or whatever, then I think this just becomes like a thing for a while. And then like maybe we take a break from it for a bit. And then when Marvel eventually ends up in some sort of Secret Wars type like event movie in a decade, then like they cash those chips in again to bring back Iron Man, Captain America, well, I would say Steve Rogers, Captain America, mm-hmm. and like others, you know, like, like, so because realistically, while, while people like yourself and myself might be watching these movies in 10 to 15 years, there's going to be new fans. They're going to want to introduce them to their, you know, biggest learning characters, your, your Spider-Man, uh, your Hulk, your Captain America, your Iron Man. You can't just take them off the board for, two decades you know so, so i i think ultimately they might take a break if people start deriding the fact that there's all these variants and all this other stuff but i think they end up i, I think they end up in some way back here maybe not yeah. the same actors but back here in, in in theory in a decade yeah i mean it's again we we talked about it off the top like you and i both read comics this is this is what comics does um, you know, I, I, Don Slot always talked about making sure that you return characters to their neat and tidy box that you found them in when, uh, when a new writer takes over. And I, I just find it interesting that they're trying this out with Spider-Man. You have a billion other C-list, D-list characters that you've introduced, and you're going to try this whole thing with Spider-Man. Yeah. Um, it's very over out of the box and put them back in. Nobody cares. <laughs> right. <laughs> you literally did. <laughs> uh, it is. I, I just, I just don't get it. Um, from a, from a from like a universe building standpoint, other than, um, I think at this point you make a Tom Holland, Spider-Man movie, it's guaranteed to make a billion dollars. So you can kind of do whatever you want. And in that way, tying this all into a bow into the Syracuse conversation, you know, experiment where you can fail fast. And, you know, this is a situation where if you make a billion dollars and it's a quote unquote failure, you know, Disney's going to see this as a net win. Totally. All right, Andy, uh, before we leave, um, very, very quickly, are there like two or three like comics or comic runs you're currently reading that you would recommend to people who like don't understand, like aren't into comics or just maybe they just want to read something new that isn't, it could be Marvel, but I guess if it isn't Marvel, great. 
Um, I was going to say, I I've already loaned this out to two different people. Um, Batman is coming out next year. The trailers look fantastic. We've all seen what Pattinson looks like in the bat suit. If you're looking for a comic book story to kind of get you in the mood for that, highly recommend zero year volume one and volume two by Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo. Um, the Riddler is the primary antagonist. It both uh matt reeves and wb executives have said that zero year is a heavy influence into what the movie is trying to do so it's a great kind of uh uh you know appetizer for that batman movie that i think is going to be excellent um if you're looking for something more marvel uh i have really enjoyed the new moon night run um i think it's by jed mckay yeah. who has done a lot of really good things for Marvel lately. I think he might be my new like hip up and coming writer. He did an amazing black cat run that I know that you and I both read. Um, that Dr. Strange too. Yes. Just abs. He's hitting it out of the park. He's, he's kind of got the, the golden touch right now. Um, the moon Knight run is fantastic. Moon Knight is a character that's very weird. It can go into a very dark place. The McKay run seems like a really good place to start. If you're not familiar with moon Knight. And then if you want to go to the darker places, you can read some of the older stuff and explore those darker corners that I hope that the MCU show gets into. I don't know if they will because it's really dark, um, but it is a character that I have just in my adulthood formed an attachment with just because I think that there is some uh, there's some good creative writing going on there. What about you? Reasonable. Um, I'll actually avoid Marvel and DC altogether. Uh, a couple things I've been reading. Um, I don't know if they're going to do any more issues, but uh, you can read the first 20 issues of Something is Killing the Children from uh, James Tinian um, and Worth of Diladera. Uh, highly recommended. I know it sounds dark and it is dark, but there's a lot more to it than that. And it's actually just great, great comic storytelling. Um, highly recommend that one. Uh, Tom King, who comic readers would be familiar with for his work on Vision, um, his work on Mr. Miracle, um, his Strange Adventures run for DC uh, about Adam Strange. Super, super interesting. Uh, a lot of fun. And like just his usual like weird, okay, we're gonna do 12 issues of this like random side story. Um, but like there's a lot of layers to it. And I would, it's hard to explain as anyone who's like Red King knows. So I'd say just like dive into it. It's again, super easy to read. Um, over in Boom Studios, uh, Many Deaths of Layla Star. Um, Ron V uh, worked with uh, Philippe Andrade uh, for a five issue run here that was just really, really excellent. Excellent, and I think the fifth issue and the final one is uh, probably one of the best comics I read all year. Um, it's super cool concept. Um, just looks at immortality, life and death, um, and the meaning of life. Like again, doesn't not superhero comic, but cool nonetheless. Um, and the last one from Vault Comics, uh, the Blue Flame, uh, Chris Cantwell, who um, does uh, I the current Iron Man run. Um, Work with Adam Gorham yeah. here. Uh, Blue Flame is like it's superhero comic, but there's like more to it than that, and and there's a lot more about like the human condition and and, and struggling through adversity, things like that. So, highly recommend all of those. Yeah, and I and again, we kind of talked about it off the top um, when we talked about the Hawkeye stuff. If you haven't, just just find the Matt Fraction David Aja trade of Hawkeye. It's pretty much in every bookstore known to mankind right now. Yeah, um, you really need to like if if, if you have if, if you're in a, if you're in a house that, that is averse to clutter, or or you are with someone that who's averse to clutter, <laughs> it is it is uh, that is very accurate, and I legit 
need to tell you to read that comic. It I reread the issue 11, the pizza dog issue where it's all from the dog's perspective the other day. Um, just reinforced my opinion that fiction writing is probably one of the most freeing and creatively interesting mediums that you can be reading during the middle of this, these terrible times. <laughs> agreed. Agreed. Uh, Andy, anything else before we uh, head out today? Um, I feel like you and I need to come back on a year from now and talk about how wrong we were about this recruiting class or about how right we were about this recruiting class. Otherwise, uh, I look forward to chatting with you in February when the main signing day is and we rehash this conversation all over again. And also rehash Spider-Man and figure out if we were right about that movie. <laughs> I, and Strange 2 will be on the horizon. So, you know, can't wait. I'm sure everyone's thrilled. Uh well, exactly. Andy, appreciate it, as always. Uh, that was Andy. I'm John. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Churn Unions and Absolute Podcast. You can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, Megaphone, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, wherever you listen to podcasts, and go orange. Go orange.